Welcome to Valley Church. Great to see you guys. Sorry about all that breaking of things. Um, happy that you're here tonight. We're going to have a good night at church together. If we haven't met, my name's Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, anyone here ride dirt bikes or motorcycles? You can raise your hand. Nice. Three of us. Um, I grew up riding dirt bikes with my dad and my brothers. We started when we were pretty young, probably like, I don't know, early elementary school or so. We rode most of the way through middle school, um, maybe some high school. We loved it, still do. My parents have some property up in Vancouver, Washington, and uh, my dad has a handful of dirt bikes, and so we ride there all the time. My kids absolutely love getting motorcycle rides from me or from my dad. I'm fairly certain they're all going to learn how to ride within the next few years, which is awesome and terrifying all at the same time. Um, There's a life lesson that I learned about uh, through riding uh, that I want to talk about. Uh, The concept applies to many areas of life, actually, but particularly vehicles, motion, your body, hand-eye coordination. It's called object fixation or target fixation. In the context of riding motorcycles, probably works for cars too a little bit. Um, The idea is that when you see something hazardous, something that you want to avoid, if you happen to fixate on it, if if you're like, wow, that looks dangerous and scary, and you focus on it, and you're fixated on it because you're afraid of hitting it, you actually increase your chances of hitting it because your mind wants to move your body towards the thing that you are looking at. So the more that you focus your eyes and attention on the thing you're trying to avoid actually could be causing your body to move towards the thing that you're looking at. Um, I learned this the hard way when I was riding a dirt bike with my dad and my brothers. I was probably in late elementary school, maybe middle school. and we were riding on some random like forest service road somewhere. I don't even, I don't know where it was. But we were riding on this, it was a big, like a, a track as wide as this, um, uh, this room is. It was really wide, plenty of room. And I see way down at the end of the track, like where our, the coffee stuff would be, this like sewer manhole cover where like the concrete was coming up and I could see the cover. So it was sticking out of the road like at least a foot, maybe more. And I see it down there, I'm like, man, don't want to hit that. And the closer I get, I cannot take my eyes off of it. And I keep riding and I'm not, I mean, I could, I could have gone over here and gone that way. I could have gone to the other side. I just kept riding, saw my brothers and my dad go around it. I can't explain why I hit it, but I did. I just went straight for it and I was trying to avoid it. I missed it or I hit it. And uh, somehow after I made contact with it, I just lost control of my bike and I shot over to the right side of this track and landed in a terrible thorny like berry bush. So I was just like buried in this, it was like six feet high and there's just so much thorns and brambles and everything. And so my dad was riding behind us and was like, where's Michael? We can't see him because I was in this bush. So I came out of the bush, they came and found me and there was like thorns in my boots and in my gloves and it was really terrible and I didn't have a lot of fun the rest of the day but I did learn about target fixation. Um, And I do think that that concept uh, applies to other areas of our life, that you move towards the things that you're focused on. That's just what happens with your life. You move towards the things you focus on. Uh, Whatever direction you look is the direction you go. Generalize it even more, the the things that your heart and your soul are most focused on will become priorities in your life. That's the direction that you will head. Um, 
And there's a particular hazard that Jesus warns us about focusing on or fixating on. We are warned on more than one occasion throughout the scripture by Jesus, by other authors in the New Testament to not focus our gaze on this thing because it is such a powerful thing that when we focus our attention on it, we head straight for the hazard. It's just like a done deal, it will happen. And that is the hazard of the pursuit and possession of wealth, things and money. So tonight's passage is about, is a story about a target fixated man and his interaction with Jesus. And so let's start um, in verse 13 of chapter 19. If you have Bibles, you can open up with me. Matthew chapter 19. We are gonna read 13 through 30. I'm gonna focus our teaching on 16 through 30. We'll start reading. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you help us understand what we are reading? Would you illuminate the scriptures to each of us in a way that only you can do so that we can see Jesus, so that we can follow him more closely and become more like him? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's head to verse 16. That's where we're gonna start the kind of main chunk of our teaching. A man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? So 
not going to go line by line through verses 13 through 15, but this man kind of functions as a contrast to the children that were there just before in those verses 13 through 15. Jesus says, the, the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. These, these are the kinds of people, these children, these are the kinds of people who most readily see Jesus and are ready to accept him and to follow him. The kingdom belongs to them. And so this guy's is asking, like, how do I get in here? And so he's meant to function as this kind of contrast to these children that we just read about. He's a man who is obedient to the law and has many possessions. He is, by all accounts of that day, blessed and important, maybe even powerful. And his question to Jesus indicates that he thought eternal life could be earned by some great deed or record of good deeds. And apparently there was actually some kind of Jewish belief that had circulated that this was possible, that if you kept Torah and you obeyed and then maybe found some other like extra good deed to do that it could guarantee you access to life in the age to come. So he's basically thinking like, I'm doing pretty good already, but maybe there's something else. What else could I do to make it so that I get into the next life, the life that is to come? Verse 17, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Jesus says, God is the definition of goodness and he has already spoken as to what you should do. He gave them the law. He wrote out what was uh, good because God is good. So he says, if you want to enter into life, obey what God had already said. Verses 18 and 19. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus lists six through nine from the Ten Commandments and then the fifth one and then jumps to this instruction from Leviticus to love your neighbor as yourself. He's basically trying to like, I think, encompass all of the law, the whole of the Torah saying you have to love God and obey him and love others as well. Um, some scholars think that Jesus is listing the second half of the Ten Commandments and that command from Leviticus because they're specifically about how your love for God would show on the outside. These were things where you could see if someone did or didn't follow them. So Jesus kind of setting the guy up for demonstrating whether his actions, um, based on whether his actions, he truly loves God. Verse 20, all these I have kept, the young man said, what do I still lack? I don't know about you, but when I've read that at first, it kind of initially sounds like a prideful like legalistic thing to say that he would say yeah I nailed it I've already I've done those things I haven't I haven't broken those commandments but it's I think likely let alone possible that he's telling the truth that to his knowledge he might not have broken any of those commandments or any of the ten that he was a good obedient Jewish man and yet he still recognizes that he's lacking something despite all his good behavior and obedience to the law he's missing something still a Bible scholar, Robert Mount, says, his uneasiness reveals an instinctive human awareness that legalism falls short of God's intention. Jesus answered in verse 21, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. This word Jesus uses perfect. He says if you want to be perfect can also mean like complete or whole. 
So Jesus is responding to this guy's question. You know, he's like, what do I lack? And Jesus essentially says, well, if you want to lack nothing, if you want to be perfect or complete, sell all you have, give the money to the poor, then your treasure will be in heaven and you can come follow me. We'll come back to that. But this was a specific request Jesus made to this man based on what he, only Jesus, could know about him. This is not a universal thing that Jesus asks all his disciples to do. But we'll come back to that concept a little bit later. The man, upon hearing Jesus' call to drop his things and follow him, uh, he walks away sad because he had many possessions. The NIV kind of, I think, over-exaggerates the original language. It says great wealth, um, but the words literally mean many possessions. Scholars think that that could mean, but doesn't necessarily mean that he was really, really rich. Um, likely, more likely meant that he was some form of the middle class and was moderately successful. Point that out because I don't want us to dismiss him as some like ancient Jeff Bezos or something where we just like couldn't relate possibly to the amount of money that he makes. He's a normal dude who's been successful and has amassed some possessions, likely land and homes. And he can't bear to part with it. And so he walks away from Jesus. Jesus says, go sell, come and follow me. And the man walks away. And then the scene changes to Jesus and his disciples in verse 23. When the disciples heard this, sorry, I just jumped ahead, didn't I? No, we're going to go all the way through verse 26. My bad. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples, this is verse 23, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So Jesus presents this teaching to the disciples, an object lesson based on what they had just observed in Jesus' interaction with that man. And he says quite literally that only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom. It's easier for the largest animal, which to them at that point would be a camel, to fit through the smallest opening that they could think of, the eye of a needle. Um, Easier for a camel to fit through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. The point being, there's something about wealth, and I think included in that is the pursuit of it and also the possession of it that hinders people from coming to Jesus and following him. It makes it really difficult. It is a target fixation with a very high success rate of trapping them in. Impossible, in fact, Jesus says. The disciples' minds are just blown. Even though Jesus had, up until this point, uh, we've read many stories where Jesus has been trying to kind of flip upside down their understanding of the world and power and status and importance. He's been trying to flip it upside down and has told them on a number of occasions, starting in the beginning of Matthew, that it is the humble, the unimportant people, people like children, who will more readily see and understand and follow Jesus. And they just can't believe that an obedient, wealthy man walked away from Jesus and was forfeiting eternal life. It was common Jewish thought, in part due to some particular passages in the Old Testament, that wealth was God blessing a good person. To have possessions and to have extra, to have plenty, meant God's favor was on you because you were a good Israelite person. So this guy comes to Jesus and uh, at least externally is very obedient and holy. 
And uh, to the disciples, he's, it seems like he's earned God's blessing of wealth and prosperity. But then the opposite happens. He walks away from Jesus, and then Jesus tells the disciples, it's basically impossible for someone like this to enter the kingdom of heaven. Disciples likely would have been thinking something like, if this guy can't be saved, this obedient, wealthy Jewish man who seems blessed by God, if he can't be saved, who could be? He's done everything right. How could this guy not have the life that Jesus is offering? Jesus says that, the, um, that undoing the grip of the pursuit and the possession of wealth and the self-interest is something that actually just requires the work of God. The gravitational pull of money and success is so strong that it requires God to intervene. It can't be done by a human on their own strength. The Bible scholar Grant Osborne says, God alone can break the barriers of sin and bring people to himself. He is in the process of doing just that through the kingdom message of Jesus and the disciples. Verse 27, Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? This is one of those moments where we just kind of get a glimpse that Peter can be a little bit of a bonehead sometimes. Jesus has just, again, tried to upend their understanding of importance, the importance of wealth as it pertains to like status in the kingdom of God. And then immediately Peter's like, we did what he didn't do. We left everything, we left our jobs, and now we are poor and we are following you. Like what, what kind of reward do you have for us, Jesus? What's in it for us? So they may have avoided the allure of wealth when they left everything to follow Jesus, but they are still absolutely stuck on status and power and success. And they, at different moments, were still kind of hoping Jesus was their ticket to be, to be something and to be important. So Jesus responds in verse 28 to 30. Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. So I think there's a couple things described here. One, in answer to Peter's question, Jesus says that the disciples actually, what's in it for them is that they share uh, in Jesus' kingly authority to rule when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom, which is a really interesting concept. Second thing, that whatever that they gave up when they followed Jesus will actually be restored to them like a hundred times over in their new life in the kingdom. And it's worded sort of strangely, but I think that both of those concepts actually apply to all disciples, not just to the 12, but to all of us. That in some way, we function as like co-rulers with Jesus um, and we'll have whatever we may have given up restored in the new kingdom. Um, so if and when you lose family, you lose relationships due to when you leave your old life and follow Jesus, the, you gain the family of God. And if and when you give up the pursuit of wealth and possessions to follow Jesus, you gain treasure in heaven and you gain like the shared communal life that the early church uh, kind of nailed in Acts 2 where they shared everything together. That's what is on offer to us. And all of that that Jesus is describing here is what the rich man left on the table when he walked away from Jesus. Jesus is describing what treasure in heaven is. 
and says that whoever is actually placing first in this life according to the world standards actually is coming in last. D.A. Carson kind of summarizes this passage, says that those who approach God in childlike trust will be received and advanced in the kingdom beyond those who from the world's perspective enjoy prominence now. This passage is sort of hard to kind of figure out um, what am I supposed to do with this today? If I stood up here and told you to do what Jesus told this guy to do, you'd probably be like, well, I'm not going to, so sorry. Um, it's difficult because this is a concrete picture, Jesus' conversation with this rich dude, a concrete picture of what is an abstract but very truthful concept to us today. So to begin, to begin following Jesus at this point in time when this rich dude asked Jesus the question, what you had to do to begin following and was very concrete. You had to drop what you were doing. You had to drop your life for the time being and literally, physically follow this rabbi Jesus around as he did his thing. So this guy wanted life. He wanted eternal life. He wanted life in the age to come and Jesus offered a very clear, not abstract instruction. He said, go sell your things and then come and follow me. Literally, physically, it's not just a, a, an encouragement to believe in the things that Jesus was saying. It was literally come be with me and that's how you will find life. It was a, a summon to join Jesus's camp as they wandered around Israel pro proclaiming the gospel. Um, our invitation is no less real than that, but it is abstract in that we don't have to get rid of possessions to literally physically like free us up from being bound to a spot so that we could go follow Jesus. We don't have to relocate to follow Jesus. If some pastor somewhere had a new person at their church who's like, I want to follow Jesus, and they're like, great, just start following it. They don't have to sell stuff. They don't have to relocate to do anything like that. It just requires them at that point to decide, okay, I'm going to start following Jesus now. It's an abstract concept. It's different today. And so the way that I'm thinking about this right now, the best way that I could come up to describe what I think we do need to do in light of this, uh, I think Jesus invites us to release ownership of your possessions and your wealth so that he can be what you are fixated on, that he can be your target fixation, that you release ownership. And even that concept is abstract. I'm not asking you to put God on the deed of your house or Jesus as the beneficiary of your estate or something. It's this mental and spiritual rewiring of your soul and your mind to say over and over again, over and over again, that everything I am, everything I have belongs to Jesus. To where we say that enough to where it sinks in as the actual truth, not like a kind Christian thought, like, oh, everything I have belongs to Jesus, but really it's mine, like it's in my possession. But really, truly, we think of everything we have as belonging to Jesus. I think the point of the story of Jesus and this rich man is that if you don't release it, you will fixate on it. That's the power of wealth and possessions. If you don't release ownership of all that you are and all that you have, you will not be able to follow Jesus. It is too hard. That's what Jesus says. Easier for the camel to fit through the eye of a needle. Um, it's too hard. Wealth is too powerful a target fixation to overcome on your own. 
without God doing something in your heart. But when you do release the ownership of your, your life, your, the focus on self, your possessions, your wealth, then and only then is he free to do with it what he wants. And he might leave much of it or most of it in your bank account to pay your bills and to put food on the table. And he might leave enough so that you can have fun and enjoy life, yes. He might provide just enough in, in seasons. And in other seasons, he might provide more than enough. But it's all still his. We have, we have to think about it that way. I can't think of a harder thing to do than to think of it that way, but we have to do it. He might want to use some of what he gave you to help someone else, to provide for someone else. He might want you to keep less for yourself, less for what you need so that we can give more to others. And when we do this, when we release our ownership, when we release the treasure that God has put in our hands, and we kind of release the ownership of it, we're kind of, I think, simultaneously dumping that treasure into our treasure in heaven account, <laughs> where we are choosing to value um, the life to come. So Jesus tells this guy, this rich guy, sell it all, give to the poor, and you'll actually have treasure, you'll have value in the life that is to come. Jesus tells us, the disciples, um, that those of you who give up things today, who release ownership, are actually gaining more, a hundred times more. That's treasure in heaven. A few more quick thoughts in closing. The process of knowing what and how God wants you to release. Releasing the ownership of what you have, your money or your things. All I know how to say is that it just has to be a humble and prayerful process. I don't think there are grids and like uh, percentages and ways to make it really black and white for you. If it's not a humble and prayerful process, I think at some point it might slip into a legalistic process where you're just trying to check boxes and kind of create this division in your money life where you're like, okay, I gave to God and now, now the rest is mine. It's all, it is all his. It has to be. I also think it has to be a humble and prayerful process because he might want you to do something different or beyond what is normal. Most of you guys, like a huge percentage of our church gives to this church. You guys are an incredibly generous church and I'm so grateful and I'm so proud of you, proud to be your pastor and it feels kind of strange to say this but at some point, God might ask you to do something else with your money besides give it here. Something equally kingdom-minded, something that would equally show that you've released ownership of what you have and that you are laser focused and fixated on following Jesus. But without that process of humble prayer regarding your finances, uh, what if you don't hear the Lord asking you to do something else? Giving to your church is good. But even that should be a humble and prayerful process where we can think and pray like, Lord, this money is yours. What would you have me do with this? I hope the Lord asks you to give to your church. But we need to be open to the fact that he might want to ask you to do something else 
with what he has given you. Honestly, I would rather have you like truly release ownership of every cent that you have um, and never see a penny of that here at Valley. I'd rather have that than a church full of prayerless, thoughtless givers, honestly. Um, I'm not saying that's what any of you are. I just care more about your discipleship to Jesus and obeying this passage than me earning a paycheck from what I do here. The next thing, a short one. Go and sell, come and follow. Those are Jesus' commands, and they have to go together. Jesus didn't ask the guy to sell everything because um, being poor and having nothing is a good thing in and of itself. Um, Jesus' command to go and sell was so that the guy would be able and ready to follow. I think this is true for us. If we're prayerful and humble about our wealth and our possessions, God asks you to do something with it and it feels hard, something that you don't exactly want to do. It's not because he wants you to go without or because he likes withholding things from you or because he wants your life to be difficult. He's inviting you in some way to follow him, to take a step closer to him in some way in releasing the ownership of what you have so that you can follow him. Last thing, this man in our passage who had many possessions was incredibly obedient. Truly, I think, truly obeyed like the laws of the Torah. He was probably even generous with his money. And he says this line that I think is just haunting. He says, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? This is a response that shows the need, the desperate need we have over and over again on repeat for the gospel. For church people, not people that don't know about Jesus. Yes, that too, but us as well. We can try to be good people. We can even to a certain extent have like the exterior of genuine goodness. There's people in your life and in my life who I know don't love Jesus but are incredibly kind and humble, good people, good to others, generous and patient and so on, but there's still something missing. There's still something that you can lack even when you are on the outside a good person. So when this man says, what do I lack? Jesus' response is basically, you lack surrender. All that your life, he's saying to this man, all your life has been about has to die so that you can live the life that I have for you and enter life in the age to come. Good behavior following the rules does not earn salvation and it does not earn God's favor. It does not get you into God's kingdom. What brings us into life with Jesus, into his kingdom, is the confession that we are not good, that you can't be good enough on your own, that there's no thing I could do that would earn God's favor. It is the confession that I'm not good and the confession that I believe that Jesus rose from the dead and reigns as king and that he would be the king in your life over everything that you have and is the king of the whole world. Let's pray together. Jesus, I can't think of a more... um, 
backwards or difficult thing to unlearn than tightening our grip around what we have, especially when it feels like we have little. And so we choose as a a people of faith to trust what you've said, that it is hard for people who are wealthy to enter the kingdom and hard perhaps for those focused on it. And so would you help us to become a church who releases our (laughs) claim of ownership over the things that we have, the money that we have, the possessions that we have? Would you help us to see them as yours for your use in your kingdom? And would this be a a gospel reminder for us that we cannot do enough, not even close to enough to earn your favor or to earn the life that you offer, but that it requires surrender and the acknowledgement that we can't be good enough, but that we need to trust in your sacrifice and your resurrection to receive the life that you're offering. So we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.